This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Austin Bohemian scene and a pronounced taste for hallucinogens. The band that is the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture were formed in late 1965 when lyricist Tommy Hall asked local singer Roki Erickson to join up with his new rock outfit. Soon they had a national billboard hit with You're Gonna Miss Me, which we just heard. But four years, three official albums, seven singles, and countless acid trips later, it was over. The 13th floor elevator's pioneering first run ended in a dizzying jumble of professional mismanagement, internal arguments, drug busts, and forced psychiatric imprisonments. More psychedelic outlaws than hippies, holding up in hill country hideouts to escape police harassment, dealing drugs to survive, and offering up a powerful mix of LSD evangelism, mystical philosophy, and straight up rock and roll. 
In their short existence, the group succeeded in blowing the lid off the budding musical underground, logging early salvos in the countercultural struggle against state authorities, and turning their deeply hallucinatory take on jug band garage rock into a new American institution called psychedelic music. Well, before we get into all that, Welcome to the Bureau. One of the great things about the Bureau of Lost Culture is people writing in with their thoughts, ideas, influences, suggestions for films, music and stories. And one of them is Ronnie Lambert, who is responsible for alerting me to the work of the 13th Floor Elevators and of my guest today. So thank you, Ronnie. And thanks to you for joining us. If you want more, if you want to help support our crazy endeavours, come to bureauoflostculture.com. Sign up for our bulletin, subscribe, discover all our stories, and then sit back, tune in, turn on, drop out, blow out the candles, kick off your sandals. My guest is Paul Drummond, owner of the wonderful Emporium, The Pleasure of Past Times. Paul deemed the 13th floor elevators significant enough to spend eight years of his life researching and writing I Mind, the saga of Rogi Erickson and 13 Floor Elevators, the pioneers of psychedelic sound. He's also the producer of 13 Floor Elevators, Music of the Spheres box set, and 13 of the Best, a new compilation previewing a forthcoming epic series of releases, The Quest for Pure Sanity, all surviving source material of the band's recordings. I'm going to get into that. We're going to hear about Janis Joplin, LSD, of course, Peyote, Arto Lamomo's Mayhem, Madness, and Music. Welcome to The Real Boss Culture. As I'm calling, 13th Floor Escalator. Sci-Fi Paul Drummond, hello Paul. Hello, I like that, thank you. I hadn't even thought of it myself, so uh, there we go. There's a shop around the corner from here, which I remember very well, one of the most lovely shops in town it was. Thank you. Just yes. tell us about that a little bit before we start on the escalator elevator yes uh well it's called pleasures of pastimes it was in the middle of cecil court um my dad was a sort of thespian put it better um trained at rada in the 40s and as he toured around the country he collected a lot of ephemera and he started shopping in labrick grove in the mid 60s and eventually that ended up in 1967 in cecil court and I was born in September 67, and they used to put me as a newborn baby in the basement <laughs> and go to the theatre. Thanks, Dad. Um, hey, those are the days, right? Yeah, those are the days. So it was very much um, entertainment-based um, showbiz. And uh, obviously, when I took it on, um, I turned that round to reflect more on my interests, to be much more punk and psychedelia. And therefore, obviously, um, the elevators crept in. And even Rocky Erickson came in and visited me one day, which was fantastic. I saw the photograph. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, must yeah. Have been, that must have been a magic moment. Oh, that was just uh, that was just everything, you know, coming together in one. That was brilliant, having him turn up. Yeah. So, shop. Is no mm -hmm. more, sadly. Lives out there in hyperspace. Some. It's online and we running a shop is very time consuming and there's a lot of repeated conversations and really what I wanted to get back to was doing my projects. And so the shop, I actually started closing it down before, mm. about a year before lockdown. So its days were numbered. Um, I'm going to say a few things about you, right? You've become, I think, the guy, haven't you? I have, the 13th yeah. Floor elevators. The yeah. book, which is out of print and 
going for a huge amount of money, I noticed. Like if you haven't seen it, I mind the saga of Rocky Erickson and the 13th Floor Elevators, the pioneers of psychedelic sound, right? You've also, mm. you put that epic box set together as well, right? Yep. The music of the Spheres, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so the first CD version was called Sign of the Three-Eyed Men, which is what Tommy Hall called it. So it was a, it was a big book of words, big box of music and then the third book was a visual history which is meant to be all the images but it ended up being like um an edited oral history so it's more, more like it's like a family album so and you've got this compilation just come out certainly the best right mm-hmm. and that's previewing this new project that's about to come the quest for pure sanity yes um which is obviously a quote from the <laughs> modest title it is well it's well, a quote from the Gurdjieffian and Gorzebiskian sleeve notes on the back of Psychedelic mm. Sounds, as most fans will already know. We talk to Toby Hall quite regularly, uh, Clementine Hall very regularly. Um, so, uh, you know, I Mine was published in 2007, but the dialogue never died away. I, I, I just can't believe what they're still telling me. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. I mean, I've, I'm now consulting back at Charlie Records, who, as soon as they knew the shop was closing, asked me to come on board. And so the quest for Pure Sanity is basically a, a list of 13 um, releases that will be literally be everything this time, so no one can ask for more. I've just found the master tapes, I purchased them this weekend for Psychedelic Sounds, all the coughs and between the songs and stuff you like that. the coughs? All the coughs are going in there, so you'll get it from the worst in-the-studio experience, What's the cold desk mix, then you'll get the perfect mono version. You'll be going up those planes, escalating up those planes of uh, elevation <laughs> to the higher realms. Going to be lots of inhaling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, for any listener who's thinking, what the hell are these guys talking about? I mean, and I've got to confess, right, I'm mm-hmm. fairly late t- to the game. In fact, it was regular listener Ronnie Lambert. He really turned me on to this. Ronnie's a massive Thank you, Ronnie. fan, yeah. and uh, he's got everything and wants everything. Good. There'll be more uh, to come, Ronnie. Yeah, he's going to be pleased about that. But for anybody who doesn't know, I'm just going to read something. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that Will Hodgkinson said in The Guardian. In that brief period in the mid late mid to late 1960s, when a youthful subculture believed the answers to life lay locked in the chemical complexities of LSD, the psychedelic music that emerged from England and the US took on very different moods. While British groups typically sang of marmalade skies and model villages, American groups described Oedipal nightmares, paranoia and violence. It makes sense when you consider the social conditions of the two countries at the time. The British drug influence groups may have received a fair deal of hassle from the man, or the odd catcall as they paraded up and down the King's Road in their dandy finery, but they didn't face a constant threat of being drafted to Vietnam or getting decade-long jail sentences for marijuana possession, as the Americans did. And I think that, in a way, is quite a good place to start, Paul, because this band, you know, widely said to have at least invented the phrase psychedelic rock, if not the actual genre, had quite a tumultuous lifespan, both in terms of when they were actually together and when they weren't together, right? Absolutely. The whole band was founded on, really, the peyote and then LSD and the revelations um, from those, but it, it was very difficult within the band even, because if you've got to think where they sort of came from, Stacey Sutherland, who's the mainstay of the band, lyricist, singer and lead guitarist, very, very religious, a Mormon background. In fact, his family emigrated from Scotland and were amongst the first Mormon um Mormon uh, groups come down to Texas who were then excommunicated. So he had religion invested and he used to lie on the floor to get nearer to God in the dirt kind of thing. Taking peyote before before the band. But 
it was a very spiritual quest with him. You've got the excitable theatrical kid, Rocky Erickson, very middle-class, successful family. But, you know, under the surface, a kind of hysterical personality bordering on to what became known as schizophrenia, whether you believe that exists or not is another matter. And then this sort of um, this Bengali uh, chemical engineering stu- uh, student called Tommy Hall from Memphis who's completely different. Well, a philosophy student, but also a, a jug-playing philosophy student. Yeah. Right? Now, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know what a jug is and what how he played it, just tell us that. It is literally a clay whiskey jug, um, but it was more of a prop. I mean, really, it's it's, um, it's what Julian Cope kind of, I think he was correct, is calling it um, vocalisation. It was very much based on free jazz. The band hated it. Stacey hated it. The very redneck drummer, drummer uh, John Ike, who probably was the biggest rebel out of the bunch, hated Tommy, hated the jug, thought it wasn't a proper instrument. Stacey wasn't quite sure. Then you've got this crazy lunatic ex-Marine, Benny on bass originally, who was a you know, first-class chair fiddle player but couldn't play bass. Um, you know, He was last working as an aqua clown, I've only just discovered. So these guys couldn't have been more crazy. But within a month of them forming uh, Thanksgiving on 1965, they all play on LSD at Play the Acid. So this is very much like Arto, Theatre of Cruelty. There's this mise-en-scene, the whole idea of the breaking the audience stage barrier. So, you know, people were tripping out this band, even if they just smoked, you know, a joint or whatever. And a lot of the audience were cutting up Piote in the park, down in Waterloo Park. But every gig was literally played... They played the acid on acid. Everyone was dosed. So this is very unusual. But they were. Tommy would tell you he's an upright, fine-standing student. Clementine, his wife. Um, her father had been an attache to the whole of South America. Um, Robert Kennedy had sent the limousine for her first marriage. She grew up next to the Kennedys in Washington. A very well-to-do woman. But very uptight. And LSD and taking peyote... Um, freed her and she hated Tommy to begin with because he was very right wing piece of work but then he he got turned over uh, we've only just discovered really um, by a doctor you got turned on to LSD by a doctor by a doctor that he yeah. only just told us yeah. recently that's a revelation that's in the new book that's being explored <gasps> so because um, he, he'd, he'd been very elusive about that before um, so Clementine's father is working for Connolly who was in the car with Kennedy when he was shot you know and so yes. Tommy thought he was a part of the establishment and LSD is obviously legal at the time you get two to ten years for any any amount of marijuana so he just thought he knew all the surveillance cops he knew all these people so when the elevators are busted literally a month before the after they're formed he just can't believe it it's, this is an insult you know and, and the, the, you know he thought he was exempt so they were very self-righteous and he's an extremely arrogant weird person but he just could not believe it and then that's the part when they be, really become outsiders from there and they're on the run there's no safe house there's nowhere they can go they're scattered up in the hill country in Kerrville um, the police are constantly on their tail. They, you know, they have to meet outside. There's the whole myth of the roller coaster. Oh, one of the significant songs as a cue for you to play roller coaster.
this is a road in um, South Austin near where Rocky lived. Very bumpy road, and they would smoke all their joints, get high. But it, it literally, you, if you go at the right speed, the car will leave the ground or four wheels, kind of thing. So that's the roller coaster ride. Um, so it was an actual real thing. And then they'd come into town, peaking on acid, you know. And they'd play and they'd turn up and perform, which is why they got this very me cured, because they never stuck around and talked to the audience. Something quite important, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. they're from Texas, they're from the East, right, I guess, rather than from the West. Completely different vibe, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And they talked yeah. about that, didn't they? Coming to San Francisco and they were like, hmm, this is a bit weak. After the bus I'm talking about, they, they only went to San Francisco because they were on probation. They're given three months proba- probation. So the only reason that they're there. So it seems ridiculous to us now, but um, San Francisco is a very embryonic, psychedelic culture. You know, the diggers are only just starting up. The dedication to acid and drugs is mm-hmm. quite something. I mean, without wishing to sort of romanticise it, mm-hmm. in fact, this story doesn't romanticise it because of what happens to them, really. It's a sort of terrifying, exhilarating read, in a way. They're sort of brief career isn't it because it is this total dedication to the psychedelic experience whilst playing music yeah all the time running from the law all the time in legal troubles and and also within the band this kind of frictions as you say these different personalities Mm. from tommy hall is this kind of interested in eastern philosophy right you know a thinker some of the others are just like rock and rollers and Mm -hmm. then and, and rocky erickson is this very mercurial charming but also sort of unstable character and it's 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 surprising in some ways that they actually got it together to keep together for the few brief years and the few albums that they did right psychedelic sounds and easter everywhere and bullet woods the third Mm. album there are the three albums really Mm. Uh, you have a beginning and a middle and the end um but how they did that is just truly remarkable particularly um Easter Everywhere, which a lot of people think is their masterpiece, you know. Second right. album, right? Yeah, the second album. This is you know um, written and recorded in the summer of love. While they are literally on the top of a hill in the Texas Hill Country in Kerrville, there are eighteen gates for the cops to get through before they can get up to the band, you know. And I went up there to the ranch and um, you know found the hunter's cabin where they were living, and and then they descend from their mount their holy mountain kind of thing drive down to houston and they record that album and they they do that in a whole month as you're saying you know the music is not particularly avant-garde but there's something about the elevators music things like roller coaster even just thinking about it, it's like religious music for me it just sends mm. shivers up my spine literally and the way it's recorded and it's so crude the Almark cover is so crude. It's like a writhing mess of just curvilinear lines. You know, this is the beginning <laughs> of lo-fi grunge. It's garage. psychedelic music, garage, yeah. you, you know, you name it, you know. I wanted to read a little bit to you from Clementine, who was married mm-hmm. to Tommy Hall. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, came mm-hmm. from quite a posh background, right? Um, and she, in a way, became a little bit like a member of the band, didn't she? Yeah. But also, you know, taking care of the kids, staying out of trouble as far as possible. But she's, this is her sin. I'm married to a rock and roll band because it wasn't just Tommy, it was Rocky. It was all of them under my roof rehearsing, crashing, and then being there the next morning. It was constant. They would rehearse in the living room or in the garage, then they would crash, stay over. They would stay over an entire weekend high in LSD and just jam, jam, jam. So I was the one who provided food, bought the blankets to cover those who were asleep. The one who tried to clean the house around them, which was damn near impossible. Once you take LSD with people and you're that intimate and that close to each other, you lose your ego, you lose your consideration of what becomes a male and what becomes a female, quite topical. You forget about what becoming means. It's irreverent and you trust each other like your children at the age children are before they discover their differences in sex. So, I mean, there's quite a lot going on there for me, partly because mm. actually 
Uh, she was holding the ship together, wasn't she, in many ways? But also, we've talked on this program before, something about women in the counterculture where their stories actually get left out of the picture quite a lot. Uh, but in that case, I mean, it was a full-on commitment, wasn't it? I mean, you can't overestimate taking acid every single day, every single show, right? She wasn't. She has been ignored. She is fascinating because she was the most literate of all of them, and I think she helped with the songs a lot more than we realise and she won't take credit for that but obviously Stacey and Rocky realised that that they had this big debt to Tommy for getting Rocky into the band so they they involved Tommy as a lyric writer not realising what they were going to get but they also went to Clementine and got her into write Splash One and then I had to tell you on the second album so she's a lot more important and the other, the other person we should mention is obviously Powell St John who was an early lyric, lyricist with them and he wrote more or less half the second side of um, Psychedelic Sound he's more counterculture than probably say Tommy Hall he's one of the earliest people who lived at this complex called the Ghetto where Janis Joplin obviously hung out he was the person who told Tommy the Cactus Ranch down in Laredo where he lived, which is on the border with Mexico, where Tommy would drive down and Clementine would drive down, dress up in conservative clothes, put the kids on the bag, back seat, fill up the bags of beans with peyote buds and come back to Tommy. Very, very left wing, very liberal. Um, he was in a band called the Waller Creek Boys, 62, 63 with Janis Joplin. I mean, Janis Joplin, I mean, she nearly joined, didn't she, at one point? She never really joined. It, 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 I think that was more wishful thinking on everyone's part. Because that would have been something, wouldn't it? That With uh, like Rocky Erickson and her in the same band. It would have been Jeez. unbelievable. I mean, yeah. the voices of it. I mean, what a thought. Clementine did say we've been... Clementine was actually there when... Um, Janice came around and actually asked Rocky if she could borrow the scream because she was much more a Bessie Smith kind of folk singer. And then Rocky's mother was a um, trained uh, soprano. She trained at Dallas uh, and then UT when they moved from Dallas to Austin, Texas. So Evelyn taught Rocky the scream, the, like an actor, how they project their voice without ripping out the tonsils. And Rocky passed that to Janice. Janice did take LSD with Clementine and Tommy at their house and because um, she did she she was a drinker obviously and more into speed but she did and the funny story Clementine told us recently is um, she she said my name's going to be Pearl and she kept rolling Pearl and she, that's where and that's like probably mm -hmm. 1965 right. so that nickname for her comes much much earlier on but she tried LSD she realized to be in the elevators you had to go with a mission. You had to drop LSD every gig, and she just couldn't do it. She'd call it their freak music. She she entertained it, but it was nothing serious. And no, they certainly never played together. They played on the same bill, but she never... The thing about taking acid every day, mm -hmm. it's risky, right? Let's be honest about it, right? Mm -hmm. but was it insisted upon? I mean, was it like... Oh, yeah. So who was doing the insisting? Oh, it was like, sit there, mouth open, throw, Tommy Hall throwing the LSD in. Mm. I mean, I actually ought to add that John Ike, the drummer, took it the second time and flipped out and never took it so at least they had the rhythm section holding it down no absolutely insistent every gig had to be played like that so some, sometimes you know gigs just fell apart but um, when they hit it they knew they were on top of the chemical they're riding as Benny would say but um, you have to listen to those recordings and when they couldn't get LSD they, they smoked DMT for like recording fire engine all the recordings are done on LSD as well and, you know, as Tommy eventually realised, you can really only take LSD every three to four days to let mm -hmm. it clear through your system before you're peaking again. So gradually you get a pattern when they're in San Francisco where they only play three or four days, but they play four gigs in one night. The Tommy's mission, mm -hmm. like his aim with this was to, what, to be able to get off the 13th floor in some way? I mean, like, is the goal 
we're going to do this and then you know the experience of the music the playing the music the, maybe the experience of the with the audience too is some sort of transcendental thing in the moment or did he see this thing as like it was going somewhere during the gig it, it's about synesthesia that you're mm. listening to the band you get a contact high um, that's why their first record label made up for you're going to miss me their first release was called contact beyond that he saw the band as like we have the information so the, the dense lyrics but trying to decode the lyrics has taken a lot of time the whole idea for him is that acid was everything there was no element of revolution but he's not going to tell you exactly this is so they're a signpost the idea for him is that you're rising up and you don't really know whether the, the information is siphoning down to you or you're siphoning up to the higher levels. And he starts talking about the packing data of the universe and really as you understand that. So obviously you have epiphanal understanding of everything when you're on acid, every unicellular being, you can somehow connect with them. And John Coltrane famously talks about that. There's thing when you actually do take proper LSD, you understand everything. But the problem is, as you come down, whichever way the siphon goes, you have to take little kind of artifacts with you, whatever you can. And so this is partly why the band, when they heard, um, I made the mistake of saying that Dylan had made a, hadn't made a psychedelic album, thinking Bob Dylan making Sgt. Pepper seems ridiculous. And they just looked at me like, are you stupid? Because obviously for them, in 65, bringing it all back home and Highway 61, worse psychedelia for them. Mm. The line in, that goes, if you need to, a third eye he just grows it and that was just mandate for them that's just as they're starting i think that's late 65 so for them the 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 visual side of dylan was just communicating to them that dylan was on acid and that dylan was having these acid revelations and that he was bringing that into music and that could be done was sergeant Uh, pepper's an important record for them then not not at all no so they were not interested in the beatles then oh they love the beatles but the beatles for them was um rubber soul because that's the time they were forming and when they had a base and they could you know the whole of texas underground was based on bringing it all back home and rubber soul um you got to think when revolver came out that's actually the day they were in court as i asked rocky what his favorite beatles song was and he again looked at me like i was utterly stupid and said tomorrow never knows so beatles were everything when tommy gets the revelation for psychedelic rock he's actually tripping watching the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And that's when he sees the Beatles and just going, just can't believe it. And that's when he goes, right, I've got to do this music. And they were like laughing, you know, psychedelic Hawaiian music, psychedelic classical. And, and they said, well, it has to be psychedelic rock. And that's where that came from. Just to go back to that Will Hodgkinson quote mm-hmm. at the beginning, there was this big difference, right, between the British psychedelia yeah. and the American psychedelia, as there was a big difference between the British counterculture and the American counterculture. Absolutely. They're kind of linked and it's sort of this feeding back between the two, right? But it's quite a different thing. Now, when they released this album, right, The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevator, it, it does become a like countercultural album, doesn't it? It's like it's an important record for a lot of people mm-hmm. who are doing that whole thing in the States at the time, whether it be with LSD and peyote or not, right? I mean, it is. it became a kind of touchstone, didn't it, for that kind of soundtrack to that era? Oh, definitely. And it did... It did- come over here i I talked to a lot of people about that and uh miles barry miles um Mm. said that you know he went over to new york and he brought it over from new york when he went over they said it was too 
too expensive to be able to fly to the West Coast. So he brought it back from New York and it circulated in London. And I think there's a press clipping where they say that it's being played in Granny Takes a Trip. So they knew it there. Jeff Dexter obviously was playing it. The Stones had it. Anita Pallenberg saw the, the psychedelic sounds at the uh, V&A exhibition and went, oh my God, that album. So it did enter the counterculture here as well and it did have resonance. I think anyone who just took one look at that cover is like, that, you've got to find out what's going on inside. I mean, For sure, yeah. yeah, whether, you know, I mean, most people read the back sleeve notes and go, what? You know? <laughs> Let's just talk about those shows. Mm-hmm. What was it like? It seems like it would be absolute chaos in a way, but maybe not. Or well, it could be extremely tight. Well, the first lineup, Benny, Benny, who's the, the ex-Marine, um, it was all too much for him. He just went off in some spiritual, like, you know, he shaved his eyebrows off, started taking speed, fighting with them, arguing with Tommy. So they got Ronnie Leatherman in on bass, who's also from the Hill Country, grew up with Stacey, much, much more mellow. And, and he said, like, you know, I'd only take half, an, uh, half a tab to begin with because he said, I'd just get into watching the lights at the Avalon and realise I was playing a different bass line to a different song. So it was <laughs> chaos. Quite a, the, the famous story where um, Rocky and Tommy turn up at the Avalon and then realise the elevators are on stage the other three have gone into jam mode and they have to clamber up on the stage and you know so there was chaos but the testimony is early on particularly when they're in texas they were they were unbelievable i mean uh, i mean a- anyone you talk to and there are some recordings of very lo-fi but if you put the headphones on and you let your ears adjust and i'll be trying to get more of those out the elevators were to take a song like Gloria, I think is the I first live version of that. Is like, yeah, you get a seven minute version of that. They're all playing lead instrument, in. no one's backing down. And it's, it is remarkable. And then there's a very good version of You Really Got Me, I think, early on. Let's have a track. What's this? Um, Through the Rhythm, which is the um, first song they wrote for the band it was a started with stacy and it's where tommy took over and dismissed it all as rubbish it was meant to be anti-school and i think you know you'll um above the stench above the slime and you'll get it the lyrics are pure punk utterly brilliant Oh, I felt the panic. 
they arrived too early, they left too uh, too soon, basically. Mm. So they were there to inspire a lot of the bands, but they Hero. never signed the big major label contract, which they wanted. But that's why we get better albums, is because they never had that. And once they'd gone back to Texas, and they're trapped in Texas, and Tommy was very aware of this, they didn't have to. Because legal troubles mm-hmm. are there, well, as you said, from the month in, right? And it mm-hmm. sort of dogs them, doesn't it, all the way through, right? Yeah, well, I mean, so, I mean, Tommy Hall was a drug dealer, let's face it. We've touched on that. He was bringing up peyote, which was legal, but also marijuana. Um, the police bust them within a month... Two, two months, yeah, 27th of January, they, they bust them for marijuana, so they all get hauled down to prison. Um, they wanted to make an example of them to shut them up, but the court case dragged on, their record companies made up a lawyer, so they managed to keep them out. The crazy ass thing is they had a hanging judge, Judge Thurman, who wanted to put them away forever, basically. But Evelyn Erickson, Rocky's mum, was a member of the prayer, prayer group, so she managed to get hold of the DA's wife to switch the judge so this elderly judge comes in and he says, what little amount found? I mean, they had 26 kilos of marijuana, you know, Acapulco gold in the shed. So they were going down forever. She switches the judge on them. So they managed to get off with leniency with three months in San Francisco. So the idea is they sign a major label deal there and they literally blow everyone else off stage. They just thought Janice with Big Brother were just hopeless country they just thought those bands were so wet because these guys it's a bit like they've been playing and playing and playing in texas so they couldn't go anywhere they were stuck there so they spent you know from well over six months just solidly playing all the dallas clubs the houston clubs so this was a hardened band i think it's time for a tune uh well the slip inside this house from the second album is again clocking in at over seven minutes uh this is everything compacted into there this is one whole album it's the whole birth death cycle life cycle uh have fun decoding it
Let's start talking about Rocky, because what happens to him is actually quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. So he gets busted for a very small amount of weed. Some people think he was planted, right? He gets the option to, uh, you know, go to prison and do his time. Don't know how long that would have been. But his lawyer persuades him to, 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 to claim madness and ends mm-hmm. up in a psychiatric hospital. Now, it's difficult for me to understand, actually, at this moment, because he was quite unstable, but but he certainly gets a lot more unstable when he's in there, doesn't he? And electroshock therapy yeah. and some very heavy drugs and stuff, and then he ends up being in a band with a bunch of kind of serial killers and insane mer- people. Mer- yeah, you can make this stuff up. It's one flu of <laughs> you, you the cuckoo's can't. nest, It's real. one flu of the cuckoo's nest, 10 years on, right, isn't it? Yeah. But much, much worse in a strange way, much yeah, more I mean, nightmarish. Yeah, by 69, by the time he actually gets caught, really, the elevators are a done deal. He's returned mm. back from San Francisco from this failed attempt to resurrect mm. the band. So, really, he's not public enemy number one. Everyone's doing it. So, this whole spurious thing, I asked him about that. He said he was smoking a joint. He flicked it out. But how did the cop, you know, let's say they, they do, they did plant it on them all the time. So, he, he, you know, he said it's like ridiculous. But anyway, the other guy uh, just gets, who he's in the car with, just gets left off. But they've got Rocky Erickson finally. The problem is he keeps, he gets put into Ash, Austin State Hospital, but he just jumps the fence. He doesn't see why he should stay in there. So they teach him a lesson. I have that piece of paperwork where they just say, well, swap one of yours. One of, we just want to teach him a lesson. And, you know, the, the, the thing was shock him till he shits, basically. And then they're medicating him with Thorazine, hence the song I Walk With a Zombie, the Thorazine Shuffle. He learnt to palm all of that, and um, that's really where his strength comes in, where he writes that book, um, Openers, which is his sort of psychedelic poetry, to prove that, you know, he's a God-fearing man mm. and... But what about this event in 1968, mm-hmm. when the Hemisphere, when he starts speaking in tongues? Yeah, that's around the time where he starts wearing a, a Band-Aid on his third eye and he's saying, you know, I'm transmitting but not receiving. Uh, it's my third eye. Mm. It, it tends to th- uh, freak people out. But the Hemisphere was the, the World's Fair in San Antonio. It was the biggest, biggest, biggest thing possible. That Hendrix is in town. They're booking all the big bands. There's the Mind's Eye Club over the road. You've got a residency. And then midway through the third album, in mid-April, he has a massive breakdown. And uh, Tommy actually sacks him from the band, says, your services are no longer required. And Rocky was last seen driving away in a black hearst with an ex-NAM, shell-shock NAM guy. And that was literally good night, Vienna, for um, Rocky mm. and the band, you know. And then his life from then on. Mm. I mean, at least, unlike, say, someone like Sid Barrett, right, mm-hmm. you know, where there's some parallels, he does carry on intermittently making music and puts out a lot of stuff later on, doesn't he? But he is plagued by these mental health issues, isn't he? With, let, me, let me read you this, which is mm-hmm. that Clementine actually said, but she's talking about um, him coming round and she's still in contact with him, right? Something was happening to him and it was awful. We'd be sitting together and he'd look at me and say... You know, the Russians keep talking to me and they're telling me I need to kill Jackie Kennedy. And I keep telling them, I don't want to kill Jackie Kennedy. This, this is Clementine speaking, this I could live with, I could understand this about him. But then came the day when he said, the Russians are trying to get me to kill Jackie Kennedy and I don't want to kill Jackie Kennedy. But then he looked at me and said, you look an awful lot like Jackie Kennedy. Mm. Why don't we just pause it there and have a tune? Um, living on. Um, this is when the band are in their final death death stages, and uh, Tommy wrote this to say that they were still relevant, and it's also a snub against a heroin which uh, Stacy was um, taking at the time. If you see me rocking, 
Bringing in my stocking If the score is tight I may drop in Plant smoke stacks Good liver Leaves no tracks What's ugly is wrong So I'm just You've got to be careful because, you see, you know, I, I went to a lot of these sort of sessions with him and stuff like that that you'll see in Kevin McAllister's documentary. And, you know, the first time when they, they were making that documentary, you know, it's the first time I met Rocky and it's just gobbledygook. You know, it's, he can't even, he's mouse floor elevators. He can't even say the name of the band. Then he says, would you like to see my house? And then the, the, the film crew will go, yeah, 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 say yes. And I'm like, sure. So I get in the car with Rocky and his mum and he turns around and starts talking to me absolutely normally. So you're never quite sure how well, much it was did, put on. In 19... you know, you're never quite sure how much it was put on. <laughs> but in 1982, he asserted that a Martian had inhabited his body. Right. And oh, we came... started that in 1975. Right. And th that was one of his put-ons. I mean, there's a great story of him on. backstage at, with Cher. And he, he explaining out he is a Martian and all of that thing. But you've got to think he was very influenced by David Bowie and the Spiders and Mars mm. horror. It's this hysterical, because he has a hysterical 
disorder if in a way and mm. he's so he's mixed with his theatrical he's just his cackle and his laugh he's got a sick sense of humor and he, he you know you've got to think rocky erickson yeah there, there are very very dark moments and what happened to him um what about the obsession with um junk mail yeah it was just um that, that was just uh, yeah well i did go around his house and there was a lot of junk mail pinned to the wall but that was more of a collective thing this is someone who's collecting other people's junk mail yeah well that was definitely a sign of madness it's a federal that's why they put him away in the late 90s is they put him away because he didn't realize you know because where he lived at the time he went around and collected everyone's mail for them he's doing a nice thing but then he forgot to actually distribute it so it's all piling up his house at christmas so they realize it's rocky (laughs) but i mean seeing rocky erickson you know reading the junk mail it says here i have one and I mean, it's just hilarious. I mean, that guy could read the pizza menu to you and have you in stitches. I mean, he was very, very, very funny and engaging as a person. Um, and I did ask him eventually. I said, you know, what was your demon? Mm-hmm. And uh, he said Rusk, which is the um, the uh, maximum security unit they put him in. Once you go in there, you do not come out kind of thing. And, um, yeah, horrible place, you know. But he did stuff, didn't he? Unlike Stacey, Stacey, so, you know, the guitarist, this amazing guitarist, as you said, disappeared into heroin addiction and alcohol abuse and then gets sh- get shot by his girlfriend. Yeah, his, know, wife, yeah. his wife, yeah. His wife, he had this premonition, didn't he, of his own death and then, he, then it happened, right? Yeah, slightly self-fulfilling, but, um, yeah, that's weird. I actually went to that house, I went and found it and got let mm. in and it was really creepy because the only bit of the house that hadn't been, it was due for demolition, um, termites mm. and all that kind of thing only bit of the house that hadn't been torn out was the kitchen which mm. is where he died right that was really spooky took mm. about i mean i couldn't even you know take a photo that was in focus mm. and then i realized i'm standing in the doorway um where she was standing with the gun and i his stacy's mother gave me all the letters the correspondence after he died written between the wife and and you know it's just it's just yeah she wasn't it, actually um she, she didn't actually go to prison for it did she? she didn't no it was they'd been they were both been drinking all afternoon and arguing and, you know, she, the wife Bunny wasn't liked particularly, but they could both, you know, really go hammer and tong at each other. I think I think it was, he ran on her and she, as an automatic thing, pulled the trigger and shot him at such close range with a twenty two rifle, it hit him right in the sternum and, yeah, that's what... Tommy Hall is alive. He is. Well, yeah. <laughs> amazingly. I mean, and very uh, chatty, if very you phone chatty. him up. Yeah. Became a Scientologist for a while, right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's extraordinary that he's the one who survived in, in a funny way, isn't it? Because he's, he's absolutely bombing it the whole time. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, the, he's totally committed to the sort of the psychotic oh, yeah. experience, and he's, he's the one who's kind of... Still going, still yeah. Going, out of the right, triumvirate, yeah, out of the triumvirate, he's still alive. No, it's it's remarkable. No, it's I mean, he's, he's not in the best of health. Um, so listen, we, we, we're coming to the end, and yeah. I wanted to finish off with one question for you, Paul, which mm-hmm. is that why, for you, why? Mm-hmm. Eight years of your life writing the book, researching, you're still doing it. You know, you're twenty five years now. Right, twenty five yeah. years. Okay, so you become the person. You work. You guys are working on a new uh, version of the book. You've got mm. all the records coming out. Why? Um, I think probably, yeah, this old adage that everyone has one story they can tell. And when you find that, and for me, you know, I started, uh, I mentioned Arto. If you notice this book, it starts off with manifesto for a theatre that's bound to fail. We set ourselves such a big high ideal, we could never reach it. And I, I, that really appealed to me. So that's the start of the, the, the book. Then when you get to the more esoteric bit in the middle, you've got the quote from Arto saying, God is covered with the dirty marks of the hands of man. And Arto himself was incarcerated, I know, without going too much into his story, but his his life, Arto Lomomo, has a very strong parallel to Rocky Erickson. He was incarcerated in a mental home. Friends said to get him out and he had an afterlife. So 
really the elevators were for me you've got everything wrapped up there you've got like divine inspiration drugs insanity and i'd written my paper at art college about creativity from unknown sources like i put it so with the elevators i suddenly realized friends were like you are getting obsessed with this oh no i'm not i like so-and-so instead and you know i'm doing a box set on the english kaleidoscope to prove otherwise you know i am working on that i do do other projects but the elevators it suddenly just took over and then there was not enough information so when i went out and met them and went to texas i just and started the dialogue with them i mean you meet tommy hall you will feel like you're tripping it will change your life so it changed your life? It has completely, yeah, absolutely. And it continues to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can't get away from this thing. Every time I go, no, 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 I'm not doing it. Well, that's it. I've done another book. I'm not doing it anymore. You know, whether it's someone wanting a photo or whatever. But I will leave it. I'll rest it off for a bit. And I'll be absolutely adamant. I'm never going to talk about this again and never do anything. Then there'll be something else that hooks me back in and reignites my interest and stuff like that. And honestly, meeting Marley and she's sort of like, oh, wow. You know, and then we start the book again and it's like, okay, there's more information you start the conversations again and it opens another whole aspect to it yeah so if you haven't gathered really the, the, the elevator story it's not just music biography because people can't understand why you know your next book should be about. i was like i'm not interested in writing another music the the, the the elevator story is much more than they made really good music which i absolutely adore there's so much more depth to it there it is um, a story about the cancer culture in a way isn't it but mm. also because obviously you've got the dark side of the cancer culture too haven't you you know you've, you've got, got the beginning got, middle and end there yeah, you've you've got got the whole maybe thing. you've got the best and the worst too you know oh yeah and, and um, i mean a lot of people say the story is sad but i i don't see it as that because they left such a fantastic yeah. body of work and they it's like i go going back to arto it's like suiciding yourself mm. art always calls about suiciding yourself they did that and i think tommy knew that rocky was, was a victim to a certain extent He'd probably mm. just been happier being, you know, mm. buddy on the unacid. Stacy was the bull of the woods, the one who was really committed to it and was the one who really couldn't leave it alone to the bitter end. You know, he carried the name on. But th these guys really did suicide themselves for their art. So I think that has to really be appreciated. And that's why I think they're authentic. And that's why I think so many young people I meet are really into them and they've picked up. And I'm glad that the book is worth quite a lot of money now, as you said, but people have valued it and um, people have understood it and I think it's a greater they're not just another one of those bands with a funny album on the wall you know why don't we finish with one last tune the last one has to be May the Circle Remain Unbroken their swan song recorded the same evening as Living On the band all collectively got together one final time and I think everyone knew time was up and this is just before Rocky cracks and um, like no other tune no drums nothing Stacy's got this Echoplex unit which he would use, to, he could daisy chain several together and he could send this note flying around the room. He, literally someone gets um, an ashtray off the table and it's that chink sound, so ethereal. You can only imagine what that fourth album would have sounded like, utterly amazing.
We're going to put links to um, Paul's work in the show notes. But in the meantime, Paul Drummond, thanks for coming to the Bureau of Voss Culture. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks to Paul and to Professor Marley, who was with us during that interview, and I, who I hope will be returning to the Bureau to talk about all sorts of countercultural things which we just didn't get time to fit in there. And thanks to Paul and Marley's dog, uh, who was very patient throughout. If you heard some strange noises, it was him, not my stomach, rumbling. Now, of course, like so often in these episodes, we really did barely scrape the surface of what is an extraordinary tale, or set of tales, really, but is worthy of a much deeper dive. I will put links in the show notes about some of the things that we talked about. Thanks for lending us your ears and your third eye. Spread the word, reviewers. Tell a countercultural friend. Write us a letter. BureauofLostCulture.com See you here next time for more tales from the other side, from the underground, testimonies of the counterculture and beyond. I was Stephen Coates. See you.